Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. You're with Sophie Guy, and this is part two of a conversation with Ben Rogers about regulation and how understanding what is happening for children at the level of their body's nervous system can support healthy development and well-being. Today's episode begins with me asking Ben to flesh out an example of what co-regulation would look like in the moment with a toddler who is very upset. I wonder if you could talk in a little bit more detail to an example of, say, you've got a toddler who's having a meltdown. What does co-regulation look like in that moment? And what is someone like yourself who's an OT thinking about in that moment to help co-regulate a child? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, when we're experiencing an emotion of another, so let's take our child, it triggers off certain things in us and often they're unconscious and I've experienced this firsthand. So there's a level of self-awareness you need to bring to that interaction first and foremost, you know, for whatever it is. So being regulated in ourselves is the, is the key first step. So noticing what that's triggered off in me, which happens in a microsecond. But if you can stop and reflect and say, okay, I need to respond opposed to react to this. And even the word, when you think about discipline, you know, it means to teach. And often we might be looking at uh, discipline and in a more behavioral kind of perspective and trying to teach by correcting behavior. But the real teaching in those moments is around supporting the emotion underneath the surface. So can you use your tone of voice and can you use uh, just really simple language to help name that emotion? Uh, I know Dan Siegel's work uh, has been brilliant for this in helping a lot of people understand that, you know, name it to tame it or connection before redirection. And I find just body posture and positioning is really helpful as well. So if I'm standing up, I might just crouch down and just be there. I think being with is a really good description of how to support those emotions. We want it to finish quickly because we don't like the unpleasant experiences that it brings for us. But if we can hold that space, if we can name, if we can be a safe person, it can, it can pass quickly. And then each time you kind of experience that, hopefully it's a bit easier. But the developmental lens adds a whole other layer to this. You know, I've got a two-year-old at home and it might be one out of 20 times where that, that for me is working effectively and other things might be coming into it where he's hungry or he hasn't slept the night before. So as I mentioned, uh, the nervous system is a complicated and integrated process, but there are some things that you can do to support um, from a relational perspective. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I wanted to pick up as well on... You talked about how understanding regulation and this sort of level of the nervous system can be helpful for understanding children's behaviour. And so how does this understanding sort of reframe or bring a different way of understanding children's behaviour? And obviously you know that children's social emotional difficulties are on the rise, children are presenting to different health professionals or being picked out for having emotional and behavioural problems. How does this understanding of regulation help to, to make sense of that? A good visual representation of behaviour is, is the iceberg that a lot of listeners might be familiar with, where we have the visual kind of iceberg above the surface that we can see really clearly. But what we can't see, and often the case with icebergs, is is the mammoth amount of ice that's underneath the water. And and this is really a good way of describing what's kind of driving up those behaviours. And so regulation sits as the kind of foundation for that in many ways. And if you take an example of the levels of arousal that we've talked about and layer on someone like Stephen Porges' work, it really helps us to understand 
how adaptive responses are built in in order for us to engage and behave in our environment. And so first and foremost is this um, social engagement green zone that I've referenced. So we know a child is feeling regulated when we're kind of observing them playing, we're observing them settled, they're calm, they're curious, and there's other kind of skills and cognitive functions that are happening in that space. But when a child senses danger in that perceived kind of sense, it doesn't have to be something that we can see, it's actually in how they perceive their environment. Naturally, what's going to happen in terms of an adaptive response to the nervous system is it'll move into more of a mobilized state. So it will either move away from potential stimulus or threat or move towards in terms of fight mechanism. And when you're looking at from a behavioral perspective, certain things you might see during those moments is frustration, irritation, anger, rage, really heightened you know, stresses and reactive states. And I think what Stephen Porges does is introduced the, the third kind of perspective of this is when we move really into our most heightened state of arousal, when we can't get away and we can't fight, what does the nervous system do? And it shuts down. And this can be a, this can be a behavior that's often missed. A child that's flat, depressed, numb, dissociating in this kind of shutdown response where we, we move from what we call sympathetic arousal into a parasympathetic response. And in those moments of shutting down, it's a way of us coping with what is a really significant stressor. And so as a practitioner, you're looking for all of those kind of triggers or um, visual cues and what the child's engaging in to, to have an idea of what might be happening in their nervous system. And obviously there's a lot of different frameworks of perspective that can help understand that child, but regulation gives, uh, I guess, a neurobiological perspective on behavior and what's happening in those moments. Mm-hmm. And the next question is around what does it look like when a child has difficulties regulating? We've been talking around it and you've, you've given quite a few examples already. So for children that have difficulties regulating, it depends on what the, the task is that they're engaging in. For a child who's experienced trauma and being in a stressed, heightened state has been really important to keep them alive, to keep them safe. And that's a really functional, important way that the nervous system has helped to understand um, its environment and engage in that environment. But when we think about if a child has difficulties regulating, we often think of it in the context of them engaging in learning or social engagement. And so a child that transitions from a really heightened home environment where those things are happening into a learning environment, it's really tricky for them to switch in and out of those modes And even the fact how the nervous system works when we're in a heightened state of arousal, if we're looking at a neutral facial expression, we're going to misinterpret that as being dangerous or um, someone that's angry. And even the way we process sound has changed as well. So for those children that have difficulties regulating, you're going to see more hypervigilance, you're going to see more um, heightened arousal states, which include movement, Um, you're going to see more agitation and frustration. And that's really an indicator that this child might be needing something to support them to, to feel calm in those moments, whether that's uh, access to a safe space in the classroom, whether that's a movement break, you know, a classic one that you might be able to give to a child when you're, you're holding the space of 30 other kids is allowing that child to take some heavy library books to the library as part of a, a job that they have. And I know it seems simple, but giving them a way of accessing an environment that's free of sound, giving them access to movement, as well as that heavy work that we reference with you know, loading it up with books, allows them to regulate and have that opportunity to regulate. 
So we've talked about how children learn or their bodies learn to regulate through the experience of being co-regulated and within the mental health field and thinking about children's mental health, we often hear about this idea of self-regulation as well and that the developmental task is to develop self-regulation. Could you talk a bit about that developmental process and that sort of transition from co-regulation to self-regulation? I mean, when should we be talking about a child being able to self-regulate? You know, self-regulation is really the the panacea of regulation, isn't it? It's where we want to get to um, even as adults. And I know for me, even I sometimes don't access the self-regulatory tools I need to feel calm and regulated. So for children... As I mentioned earlier, co-regulation is really that, that key foundational piece for them. And for many, many, many years through in utero, even with mothers passing on messages to children about what the environment is like if there's increased stress there or other things. And so co-regulation happens through that utero, birth, childhood, adolescent, early adulthood process. The first part of that, I think, is really about understanding and limiting the environmental stresses that might be impacting regulation. So as OTs, we work a lot with um, children who have experienced sensory processing differences, and these are children who might have difficulties processing sound, have a low threshold for um, visual stimuli, and other you know factors in, in which they interpret the world around them in a different way to um, others. And... I think that understanding of the environment and certain triggers are really important to helping a child to then be regulated. And when we think about self-regulation and any task or tool that we're learning for ourselves, we need to learn and practice that when we are in a calm and balanced state. You know, if we're, when we're in a heightened state of arousal, it's really tricky to, to learn new skills because our brain isn't able to access those, those tools and resources. So I think first and foremost, Understanding the environment and what's triggering off um, a stress response for a child is really key. And then can we find a way of helping that child make sense of that experience you know, to build some level of self-awareness in what's happening for them? And as I talked about the body mapping, is it a good example of that where a child might start to talk about and give labels to what their experience is? I know the Zones of Regulation is a great program for children which helps them to give um, names and labels. It talks about the various zones that I've referenced today. And then the other factor there is once we've looked at the environment, we've looked at self-awareness, is finding the tools and approaches that they can use in those moments before they move into the red mist or you know the storm comes as the as children have labelled it in the past and help them to regulate in those moments. I think thinking about those approaches, the breath is talked about a lot and I think that's a really powerful tool that anyone can use to self-regulate you know it's something I used before talking in this podcast and often we talk about the importance of diaphragmatic breathing which is really important taking nice deep breaths but what happens when we get into really stressed or, or heightened response is that we tend to hold more tension in our body our breathing positioning changes and if we can breathe out it actually actually talks to our vagal tone and allows us to calm down a lot more I know Stephen Porges talks about um, when doing public speaking, if you can just slowly extend your talking, it naturally can regulate how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. But even something as simple as three in, seven out breathing is really helpful where we breathe in three, as well as anchoring our attention on the counting and out for, for seven can be really helpful in, in regulating the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So for kids, we can teach them this at a young age. And as well as layered on this is our thinking because... 
we do have this primal response, as I've talked about from a physiological point of view, but also that comes with that is these kind of patterns of thinking that are related to certain experiences that can perpetuate in our mind. So any tools that we can use to identify with those thinking patterns and and redirect or reevaluate or anchor on our attention or the present moment can be really helpful in teaching children how to self-regulate. So mindfulness-based programs are a good example of that. Mm -hmm. We would be talking about older children here, wouldn't we? I guess I'm mindful that uh, I sort of have observed or heard people reflecting on this space a bit and saying that we've perhaps emphasised self-regulation a little bit too much too soon and it's important to get across that message about a child learns to self-regulate through the experience, having many, many repeated experiences of co-regulation. And in fact, that our nervous systems aren't fully formed when we're born. So in fact, we are evolutionarily and physically designed to come out, caregiver waiting for us to do this regulating thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think coming back to the importance of co-regulation and what that means, you know, we've referenced some tools and approaches that we can use with children to help them regulate but really, if we're looking at one key approach, it's using ourselves to co-regulate with those around them. And that can happen um, as a parent, as a practitioner, as a person, you know, engaging in the world around us is that we are social beings and we're built to engage with others. And I think if you layer the whole COVID environment at the moment and what's happened, it's really shut down a lot of that kind of social engagement and reciprocity that we naturally share with others. So the more that we can be with others' emotions as a parent or even as an educator or practitioner, the more children begin to understand that it's okay and safe to have these experiences and learn just, just at a foundational level what it's like to, to hold all of that. And, yeah, so I think obviously agree with you in terms of co-regulation being the foundational um, piece, the take-home message from this podcast, I guess, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Is there something you want to say? Because in the back of my mind, I'm well aware that depending on the experiences we've had, and many of us have not had necessarily the best experiences of being co-regulated ourselves. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of us walk around quite afraid of being in the presence of other people's emotions. And so I'm just wondering if there's anything you want to say to sort of speak to that and that tendency that we have to want it to be over quickly or to get dysregulated ourselves because it awakens something in us when we have someone, a child, having a meltdown or that idea that sort of knowing that it is an over-arousal thing, it's, it's going to have a natural trajectory, it's going to come down. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, it's such a good question, Sophie, because... For parents, and think about this, for me, when I'm responding to or co-regulating with my little boy, it's highly likely that it's going to be causing some level of um, dysregulation in me. And so the task in many ways for us as parents is to, to learn the tools and strategies to be able to hold that in ourselves and to find some kind of neurological space to then be self-aware of that and then respond in an attuned way because it, it happens in these micro moments of stimulus, you know, crying, you know, the other day he knocked his plate off the table onto the floor. And then for me, that, that just due to my upbringing, that, that raised, you know, had to be really clean and had to be respectful at the table. And 
in that moment, I noticed there's some reactivity. And so you have to stop yourself in those moments and say, okay, what, what are we trying to do here? Obviously, there's an emotion in that moment of, of him and what he's trying to achieve. And so this interplay of stimulus, reaction and response uh, is something that we should be self-aware of as best we can and, and find the space to then respond in, in ways that are meaningful for that child. So in that moment of him doing that, it's really saying, hey, you finish your dinner and you need a bit of time to, to go and play. And I can see you're frustrated. I can see you're really upset and I'm here. I'm here. It's okay. And once he's calm and regulated, that's where we can have an opportunity to teach him, you know, when he's in that green zone again about, hey, you don't knock your plate off the table, matey, because then we have to kind of vacuum it up afterwards and it's not great. So I think this is a good example of the interplay of what adults and parents are working with with children. How can practitioners begin to apply the concept, this process of regulation in their practice with children and families, perhaps where it's a new concept for them and they're wanting to start trying things out? Yeah, I think there's a variety of ways in which they can embed some of this work. First and foremost, thinking about themselves and that therapeutic use of self that we mentioned. How are they using their facial expressions, their tone of voice to convey safety in the interactions that they're having with a child or family? Uh, also thinking about some body-based approaches. And if you just come back to that idea of movement being really regulating for a child and also the breath being really supportive, one of the most favorite activities that kids engaged in in sessions with me was, as they reported, was um, the cereal box. You'd cut a roof off a cereal box. You'd have a couple of straws and a table tennis ball and you'd just play um, table tennis soccer in between you know, the cereal box. And so starting a session like that was really effective because no matter how the child kind of came into that session, we would have that fun, engaging relational activity that involved using the breath. And also this idea of just other little micro moments in the day where we can kind of feed children's need for, for movement or regulatory inputs. For me, I'm in this podcast in between our breaks, I'm using a camelback drink bottle, which is naturally regulating for, for any adult or, or child. It's the bite, suck, swallow synchronicity, which is naturally calming. And so you can have that as a child, as a student on a desk at a, a school and that can really feed your need to move and help you to stay regulated throughout the day. The final piece of this is thinking about our environment. How do we create predictability and familiarity in our environment to support the nervous system to feel calm? I talked about that concept of neuroception earlier and that never switches off. We're always scanning our environment for danger. And so when things are predictable and familiar and there's routines in place, that neuroception is able to turn down to a low level because I know what's going to happen. I know that teacher, I know how they're going to respond or I know that person in the environment because I know what they do. And so that really allows a child to manage the stress that they're probably coping with in other areas as well, potentially, to, to not have to worry about those things from a, a neurological perspective. Any other examples? For practitioners that are listening and thinking, gosh, there's lots of information in this podcast and I'm not sure where to start. I, I just come back to the therapeutic use of self and how you use yourself in the interactions. That's a key thing to take away from potentially this podcast. Yeah, and maybe I could just pick something up. Could you talk a bit more about why is that therapeutic and what is it about our voice and our facial expressions that's important for regulation and for calming the nervous system? Yeah, so the other day I had a meeting with a colleague and I walked in and I was wondering if they were frustrated with me or upset with me. 
And I, I wasn't getting the reciprocity, so that I was smiling, I wasn't getting smiling back. My tone of voice, my intonation was kind of used a lot of different range, but theirs was really flat and their expression was quite flat. And so as we were talking over you know, a couple of minutes, they said to me that they'd actually been to the dentist and they'd, um, they're, they're, half their face was numb. And so I think that's a really key example because in that first two minutes, I noticed that my level of alertness slightly increased and there was a bit of a stress response as I interacted with them. And so that's a really you know, good practical example of the importance of reciprocity and what Stephen Porges talks about safety cues. And so just by using the full range of our facial expressions, we can resonate, we can send a message um, to the nervous system of someone that was you know, working with and can support them to feel a bit more regulated. Obviously, part of that is trying to attune and meet a child or, or parent where they are in the moment. If, if it's not congruent, then it can have an opposing effect. But if we're meeting them in that kind of social engagement space, it can allow them to, to convey safety. And I found that prosody and rhythm has been a really effective tool in supporting regulation as well. I don't have an amazing kind of singing voice, but if you can use the intonation of your voice in a way that conveys safety, that's not low frequency sounds or high pitched frequency sounds, but is that kind of nice kind of prosody in the voice, it can really support uh, the nervous system as well to feel calm. And so that, that's something you can play around with, with your, your kids, with your um, nieces or nephews or um, potentially in sessions with children and families as well. It's something that I, I definitely enjoy and now that we've got this you know, deeper level of understanding through Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory it really validates that approach in many ways. Well I think that it's been a really rich and interesting conversation Ben. I think we'll wrap it up here and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks Sophie. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.